Hi everyone, I'm Pastor Garrett. I'd like to welcome you to this online resource from Christ Lutheran Church. Uh, if you're new to Christ Lutheran Church, just encourage you to learn more about us by going to our website, which is clcscv.org. Or maybe the better way to get to know us a little bit more personally uh, would be to come to worship on a Sunday morning. Uh, we'd love to have you join with us at either 8.30 a.m. or at 10 o'clock a.m. on a Sunday morning. Uh, so with that, we hope that this Sunday sermon is a blessing and benefit to you and to whoever might be watching with you. God bless. Today's reading is Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell along thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. The Word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so I want to start just with a few series of questions. Um, and they, I guess just the question is, why is that? But a couple different scenarios. So uh, the first one, some people will hear a sermon, right? And it's absolutely life-changing, whereas other people will hear the same sermon and it makes no difference. So why is that? Another one, some people receive the sacrament of baptism and it becomes the fundamental identity of their life. They root themselves in that baptism. Uh, other people receive the same sacrament of baptism 
and it means nothing to them at all. So why is that? Sometimes we commune at the altar uh, and it fills our life with peace that week. But other weeks, we commune at the altar and we have no peace at all. So why is that? Sometimes we read the Bible in the morning and it is deeply formative of our heart for that day. Other times we read the Bible in the morning and we forget it five seconds later. So why is that? Uh, So in our passage that we had right before this, it's this parable that Christ tells about a seed that's getting scattered on different kinds of soil. What the seed is meant to represent is the gospel of Christ, is the main thing. Uh, Or another way to put it, I'll put it a couple different ways, but another way to put it, uh, the seed is meant to be the word of God's truth. Maybe the best way to put it, my personal favorite way, uh, the seed is a message from God in and through which Christ himself comes to us. And you see, that seed is sown in our hearts in one of three ways. Uh, It's sermons, sacraments, and scripture. And so kind of the basic premise of this passage is every time we hear a sermon, every time we receive a sacrament, every time we read scripture, Christ himself is coming to us like a seed, getting planted in the soil of our heart, uh, which is incredible. Uh, It's beautiful, it's amazing, and yet here's the phenomenon that I think we've all experienced. Uh, The same sermon, same sacrament, same scripture can have wildly different effects on different people. And I think more to the point, that same sermon, same sacrament, same scripture can have wildly different effects on us, depending even on just the day. Why is that? See, in the parable, the answer, I think there are a bunch of probably variables involved, uh, but the main one that Scripture itself focuses on, uh, and the answer given in our parable, is because there are different kinds of soil. And that's why there are different sorts of results. Uh, In fact, Christ identifies a total of four soils, three of which render the seed of Christ unfruitful. Uh, And so what we're going to do for the rest of this, we're going to go through each of the kinds of soils. And I should say as we do that, uh, the point of this parable is not to get us guessing which kind of soil we are, uh, as if we're just kind of doomed to being one particular kind. Uh, Rather, I think if we look inside ourselves as we go through the parable, what we're going to see is that we have tendencies to be all of the first three. Uh, Those are the soil with these particular issues that make the word of Christ unfruitful. Um, So we're going to see ourselves in all three of those. And I think the purpose of the parable is to call us out of those so that we can become the fourth kind of soil, which is the good soil uh, that bears the fruit of Christ. Uh, So with that, let's go to the first kind of soil. Uh, Right after college, I moved back to Santa Cruz. I'm from here originally, so I moved back here. And I was substitute teaching in the school district here. I kind of thought I might become a teacher, so I was going to dip my foot in that. Um, I was also coaching volleyball at a number of the different schools here. So so I coached boys volleyball over at West Ranch, and I coached girls volleyball over at Canyon. And one thing about it, these were typically JV teams. uh, And in my mind, whenever you take players onto a JV team, a lot of that is based purely on potential. You see, because when it comes to volleyball, this isn't hold true for every sport, but volleyball in particular, not a lot of kids just grow up playing that. And so whenever you have tryouts, you're probably not going to find a bunch of really good, fully developed players. So instead, what you're looking for, you're just looking for the potential to be good, which for the most part, 
that totally works out just fine. Sometimes you, you know, you get it right. Uh, but other times, and in fact quite often is, it's, you'll take a player who looks like they have a ton of potential, uh, but about midway through the season you start to realize that kid is uncoachable. Meaning even though they had the potential, you really couldn't do anything with it. Uh, for whatever reason, they could never really grow. In particular, they weren't open to getting better. In fact, whenever I would talk to other JV coaches, they would all kind of recognize the same phenomena on our teams, right? Uh, this is pretty common. We'd say things like, I love that kid. I thought he was going to be great. Uh, but man, he's not coachable. And you see, the more I coach, I started to see that it was typically one of two things that made a, a kid uncoachable. The first one was totally obvious. The second one, I think, was less obvious. But uh, one of these two, so just to point them out, start with the first one. Uh, one of them was he just wasn't open to correction. That's the one you'd find out almost immediately, right? Not open to correction. I mean, you get a kid who, for whatever reason, he can't be told that he's doing anything wrong. Uh, in other words, pride is what we would call that. And that's probably the main thing that would make a kid uncoachable. Uh, you see, because in, uh, one thing about sports, in order to get better, almost guaranteed, you've got to change a bunch of stuff that you're doing in order to succeed. Uh, you've got to learn things that at first feel totally unnatural to you. Uh, you've also got to unlearn things that have started to feel natural to you. Uh, and whereas maybe that sounds okay to us in theory, some of the kids weren't, just weren't open to that. Uh, they didn't want to feel uncomfortable. They didn't want to look dumb, I think it was another part of it. Uh, they just wanted to stay the same in some ways and somehow still be on the team. And so even though you were still totally coaching them, this player's pride would get in the way of that. They would make, it would make it so they would never really grow. Uh, the other thing, the second thing that would make, so first pride, the other thing that would make a kid uncoachable is what I'm gonna call complacency. Uh, what I mean by that word, a lot of the times when you start a new sport, probably the first year, year and a half, there can be this incredible growth that happens, uh, especially towards the end of the first year, going into the second, you grow a ton. Uh, you're learning a totally new game. You've got a ton of things to fix. You've, fixed. You've got a lot of room to grow. And so for that very reason, early on, there can be, so take away the pride issue, uh, but there can be this dramatically noticeable improvement. It's usually pretty incredible. In fact, it's typically what hooks a kid on the sport. And yet inevitably what happens, all that begins to slow down without fail. It, doesn't, it happens to every single kid who plays the game, right? Uh, not because you're doing anything wrong. That's not why it slows down. It's just kind of the nature of growth. And yet for a lot of people, as soon, a lot of players, as soon as their growth started to slow down, be less dramatic, their tendency was to become complacent. In other words, you just start going through the motions and you're not really listening to your coach or looking to grow anymore, is what I mean by complacency. And complacency can take a player who you thought at first was gonna be incredible, they were growing so much, right? Uh, and it can turn them into one of the most lackadaisical, frustrating players to coach. Uh, it's like you just can't get through to them anymore. So those two things, pride, and complacency could take a kid with all the potential in the world and yet make it that that potential is never gonna be realized. 
Uh, if you go to that passage that we read from Mark chapter 4, the very first kind of soil that Christ mentions, it's the soil that's really more like a well-worn path, is what he says, meaning it's become so hard on the surface that the seed can't penetrate it. And you see, what he's talking about is something the rest of the Bible, Hebrews in particular, refers to as hardness of heart. Uh, what it is, it's this interior attitude that makes us pretty much uncoachable. And it's almost always rooted in one of the same two things that makes a kid uncoachable. Uh, so just to point them out again, one of them is not open to correction. In other words, pride shuts us off to the gospel. Is it because one of the basic prerequisites, if I could use that word, in order to follow Christ, uh, there's a lot of change that's got to take place. We need to be open to that. We've got to unlearn certain things that seem totally natural to us at this point. We've also got to learn other things that seem totally unnatural to us. We've got to shift certain attitudes. We've got to give certain things up. We've got to do whatever it takes to be free from the power of sin. And for a lot of us, a lot of the times, no. We're not open to that. And that's the first thing that prevents the seed of God's grace from sinking into the soil of our nature. Hardness of heart rooted in pride. Uh, so that's pride. The other one, complacency. Uh, and this is, for a lot of us who've been Christian for any length of time, this is the tricky part. Same with a kid who's played the sport for a period of time. Uh, for any of us who've been Christian for any period of time, it's common to slip into complacency. You see, because early on, if you think back to it, when we first come to faith, there can be this incredibly rapid growth. Uh, we're learning a new way of life. There's a ton of room to grow. There's a lot of things to fix, right? And so at first, everything's shifting. It's great. It's incredible. And yet inevitably what happens is that growth slows down. It slows down. And just to emphasize something, most of the time it's not because we're doing anything wrong. It's not. Uh, it's just the nature of growth. It often starts out rapid and then slows over time. And yet still, it's frustrating, right? Growth seems to come to a halt for us. Old habits that you thought had died start to creep back in. And what started out as a rapid and relatively easy improvement becomes more like a long slog with only incremental change at best. And so at that point, it's easy to get complacent with where you're at. In which case, we just start going through the motions of Christianity, and we stop really listening to the call and the correction of Christ. And so even though he's still speaking to us, he does not stop speaking to us, but it's like he can't even get through to us anymore. Hardness of heart is what the Bible calls it. The well-worn path is how our parable depicts it. And whatever the cause, pride or complacency, it makes the soil of our soul unreceptive to the seed of God's grace. In which case, what you'll find is even though you're still hearing sermons, receiving sacraments, reading scripture, none of it is really taking root anymore. We're bearing the fruit of a Christ-like life. That's the first kind of soil mentioned in this parable. Let's go to the second. 
Right, so the second kind of soil, the shallow kind of soil, that's what Christ calls it. Um, what happens is unlike that hard soil uh, where the seed can never really sink in, uh, when it comes to the shallow soil, the seed totally sinks in. In fact, Christ says it happens immediately. It's easy for it to sink in. Uh, it produces the plant of Christ right away. And so there's a sense in which at one point, this person could be on fire for the Lord, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It's all happening. Uh, for instance, maybe it's the beginning of, just to kind of give a concrete example, uh, maybe it's the beginning of the day, you open up the scriptures, you have a period of devotion, and it imprints itself on your mind. You ever had that happen? Uh, it imprints itself on your mind, it makes this holy impression on you, and so you go into the day with this beautifully Christ-like disposition, and I'm sure the intent that that's gonna be there when the day ends, right? And yet the problem in the parable is because the soil is shallow, we're gonna look at what that means in a second, but because the soil is shallow, that plant that is Christ doesn't have deep roots. And so, and so as soon as the sun gets hot, which we're gonna look at what that means too, but as soon as the sun gets hot, that Christ-like attitude, what happens? It just withers, dies, and disappears. So what's that about? What's going on? Uh, so just a couple months before my wife Christy and I got married, her mom threw a wedding shower. I was at her house out in Arizona. Her mom was out in Scottsdale, so she had it in her backyard. It was beautiful, and one of the things they did, and I think this is kind of common at wedding showers, uh, but as each person walked in, they handed them an index card, and what they were told to do is to write their best wedding advice, not wedding advice, marriage advice. And so if you just think about it, uh, if someone gave you one of those cards, Two to three sentences, what would your best advice for a newlywed couple be? Now, some of the advice we got, it was great. It was really good. Uh, so let me just name a few of them. Uh, it was things like pray together when you go to bed. It was one of them. Uh, put Christ at the center of your marriage. Apparently there were a lot of Christians there uh, that day. Uh, but put Christ at the center of your marriage. Never stop dating each other. Was another. How are you doing? Uh, so never stop dating each other. Never go to bed angry, which is typical advice, but then they follow that up with, unless the reason you're angry is you're just tired. Just go to bed. That's actually pretty good advice. And then distinctly, I remember, one of them said, put your husband's needs before your own. We framed it. Okay, so no, we did not frame it. Uh, anyway, she's reading these out loud, right? All the women are either kind of laughing or it's, uh, and so it's really just kind of a nice, meaningful part of the shower, you could say. And as Christy's reading these, she gets to the last one. It's from one of her childhood friends. And just to kind of preface uh, her situation before I read what her card said, uh, but her friend had gotten married right out of college. She'd been married two to three years. It was kind of a rocky road the whole way through. Uh, and at the time of the shower, she was on the heels of a nasty divorce. And so Christy picks up her advice card. At this point, everyone's feeling great, right? It's a very happy atmosphere. Uh, she reads it out loud, and here's what it says. It says, over time, you and Garrett are gonna fall in and out of love with each other. You just better hope you don't fall out of love at the same time. <laughs> Wait, what? That's really your advice? Uh, I was like, someone took a balloon and just pricked it with a needle. You could feel the air go out of the party. And so if I can just say three things about that. Uh, number one, we did not frame that one. Definitely was not a candidate. I don't think we framed any of them, but we did not frame that one. Number two, even though we didn't frame it, she actually got part of it right. 
she got part of it right. You see, because what she said is over time, you're going to fall in and out of love. And I think what she meant by that is over time, your feelings for each other are going to ebb and flow. Which anyone who's been married any length of time, let's just be honest, right? Yeah, your feelings for each other ebb and flow. It's totally true. Feelings are kind of fickle. They tend to do that. Uh, And in particular, they tend to come and go depending on your circumstances. Meaning whenever things are going well in our life, whenever things are easy in our marriage, feelings of love just kind of bubble up pretty naturally. Uh, And yet whenever things are not going well in our life or in our marriage, communication breaks down, one person loses their job, you go through a period of depression, it's incredibly common for those feelings to dissipate if not disappear. And so yeah, number two, she got it right. You do fall in and out of love. And yet number three, the third thing I'll say about it, so what? So what? And not to be flippant about it, I don't want to come off that way, uh, but why do we have to quote, last part of the advice, make sure it doesn't happen at the same time, right? Now you see, here's the thing about this. What made it bad advice was not that she said we would fall out of love, although don't say that in a shower, like bad timing, right? But still, that's not what made it bad advice. What made it bad advice is she said, if you fall out of love at the same time, your marriage is going to be ruined. And I'm just going to say, no, it's not. And here's why. Uh, When it comes to marriage, our commitment to each other has never been meant to be dependent on our feelings for each other. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. It's our feelings for each other that need to be rooted in our commitment to each other. Meaning, as long as you're married, no matter what you feel on any given day, no, you commit to pleasing the other person. You get really intentional about it. And you see, what that does is it gives your marriage the chance to become something deeper than your feelings. And not to be misheard on this point, that doesn't mean that feelings go away altogether or that they're inconsequential to the marriage. Uh, Like, oh, I hate my husband's guts, but you know, it's just all about commitment. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is when we make it all about commitment, that's eventually going to create feelings that are a lot deeper. In particular, it's going to create the kind of feelings that you have for someone who has been through hell with you. And they've never left. It's a different sort of feeling than when you first fall in love. And so I think it was Tim Keller who described it this way. He said that early love is like a bubbling brook that's uh, exciting and full of life. Uh, It's great. Falling in love is a beautiful thing, right? And yet the point of that bubbling brook is not to stay the same. Now, the point of the bubbling brook is to deepen into a river. Which on the surface, a river is going to look a lot more calm. Maybe even a lot less exciting than a bubbling brook is how it looks on the surface. And yet get beneath the surface. And what about that river? It has a lot more depth and power. And you see, in order to get that, in order to have that depth of feeling, 
What it takes is an even greater depth of commitment. For better or for worse, is what we say. For richer, for poorer, sickness, health. In other words, no matter how you feel, no matter how things are going, you dig your roots deeply into the promises you made on your wedding day. So perhaps you're wondering, why are we talking about marriage? Um, Is this not supposed to be about Christ? Uh, And I'm just gonna say, yes, it is about Christ. And that's because you and I are the bride of Christ. And you see, just like a human marriage, the relationship is analogous. It's pretty much the same in terms of the way it works itself out. And so just like a marriage, what's really easy to fall into is to make our commitment to Christ dependent on our feelings for Christ. And don't get me wrong, I think a lot of the times for a lot of people, when they first come to faith, it's the feelings that drive the commitment. Just like it's the feelings that drive you to your wedding day, right? And yet it's not the feelings that drive you after that. You see, because just like any marriage, those feelings are always going to come and go. In particular, they're typically going to come and go on the basis of how your life is going. And so you go to that parable from our reading, and what happens is it, quote, gets hot, is what it says. And I think about heat and also fire in the Bible, what it typically represents is a trial, a difficulty, adversity, you name it. Uh, and so what Christ is saying is when it comes to this shallow kind of soil, whenever it gets faced with a trial, whenever the day doesn't go well, whenever periods of time gets, get hard, the plant that is Christ, what does it do? It just withers and dies. And yet, here's the thing about that. It doesn't need to. You see, the way to have a Christ-like disposition that's deeper than your feelings, in order for that to develop in you over time, is no matter what you feel, you just commit yourself to pleasing Christ. And the thing is, just like in a marriage, That commitment to Christ gives your feelings for Christ the chance to become deeper and to have more power. And so even though it's incredibly common, this is really common, to root our faith towards Christ in our feelings for Christ, the call is to root our faith in the promises that he's made to us on the day of our baptism or the day that we receive communion, any of these sacramental acts, anytime we come to worship and hear the word of God himself, you root yourself in those promises, not your feelings. And eventually that's gonna create a new kind of feeling. Uh, Namely, the kind of feelings you have for someone who has been through hell with you. And they've never given up. Uh, So that's the second kind of soil. Let's go to the third. Uh, So far, just to kind of look at where we've been. Uh, We've got the hard kind of soil, that's hardness of heart. We've got the shallow kind of soil, that's weakness of will. I was going to call that when we root our faith in our feelings, it creates a weakness of will. Uh, Now, the third kind of soil is the weedy kind of soil. It's full of weeds, and we're going to look at what that means in a minute. Uh, But first, some of you know, uh, two weeks ago, I went on a retreat. If you go back two weeks and watch a sermon then, that's just getting ready for this retreat. Uh, It was three days, I was out at a monastery in the middle of nowhere. It's totally nowhere. Uh, it's called St. Andrew's Abbey in Valermo. 
And so what I did, I drove out there on a Monday, and when I got there, two things in particular really struck me. Uh, one of them was just the landscape as you drive it. See, all around the monastery grounds, it is just desert out there. Uh, a lot of it got burned by the bobcat fire. If you remember that, that was the fall of 2019 is what they told me. I was living in Pittsburgh at the time, so I don't remember it. Uh, but they said it was fall of 2019 was the bobcat fire, so there are a bunch of burnt Joshua trees surrounding the monastery. Uh, but even more so, just the landscape as a whole, it is desolate out there. It's a yellow-tinged dirt. Everything is bone dry. The trees are burned. There's just kind of a random rickety house every few miles along the road. Like, who lives out here? Uh, and so overall, you just look at the landscape as you drive in. It is totally barren. And yet the second you get onto the monastery grounds, it's incredibly vibrant. Now, what I mean by vibrant, it's got tall trees, beautifully green, swaying in the wind, a big field of grass with a couple of deer that I saw. Like, how did they get out there? A beautiful pond with a few ducks. And so as you could imagine, uh, just this juxtaposition between what surrounded the monastery and then what was going on inside, you couldn't help but notice it. Uh, so that was the first thing. The second thing that struck me when I got there is I started interacting with a few of the monks. And one thing about their life, it's not normal which probably sounds like the most obvious statement of the day, right? Uh, I mean, they can never get married. They live in the middle of nowhere. So obviously they're a little bit different from us. Uh, and yet the thing is, I think it's much more far reaching than that. Uh, the difference between their life and ours, that is. Uh, in particular, if you just think about it, they've pretty much given up any sort of worldly desire that one might have. Uh, for instance, any sort of sexual desire, they've totally denied themselves that. Any sort of ambition for success, career plans, hopes for advancement, they've totally cut that off. Any desire to acquire and accumulate things, make their life more comfortable, they don't have that option. Not to mention, no TV, no internet, no cell phones. You don't even get surface up there. Uh, just a single little bed in a little tile room with a simple little bathroom and a desk in the corner. Is their life. And so just like that landscape that surrounds them, the outward part of their life looks totally barren. Yet here's the thing, you get inside the grounds and you spend a little bit of time with them. And the inward part of their life is incredibly vibrant. It is, it's noticeable. Uh, what I mean by that, incredibly vibrant, uh, is that the life of Christ literally emanates from a lot of them. Uh, notice I said a lot of them. Not all of them. Uh, the guy who checked me in was kind of a cranky old New Yorker. He was upset that I wasn't there on time. Uh, he did not appreciate it. And so monkhood does not automatically make you good soil, just to put that out there. Uh, but still, for the most part, when you looked at these guys, what you saw is what I think all of us know we are meant to be. Image of Christ. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. It's all there. It's palpable. And it just kind of struck me. And so one of the days that I was there, 
right after evening compline. And compline is the final prayer service of the day. It would start at seven, usually right, right around 7.30 is when it would end. Uh, so I decided I would hike up the hills to a cemetery. It was the monastery cemetery. Uh, it's about a 20 minute hike up into the hills. So I get up there and I'm just watching the sunset from up there. And I'm looking out at the desert where it's totally barren. And then I'm looking down on the monastery below where it's incredibly vibrant. And I'm thinking about these monks whose lives kind of reflect the same phenomenon. And I'm just sort of wondering myself, how is this possible? Meaning how in the world are they so vibrant when everything in their life looks just kind of barren? And you see, as I'm thinking about this, out of the corner of my eye, I see someone hiking up the hill. Uh, and I'm kind of caught off guard by this. Uh, sometimes I think the, di- the desert can be dicey. <laughs> like, who's really out here? Um, I figured no one else was going to be up there. And so as he gets closer, I'm just trying to figure out who this is. You see, because he wasn't at dinner that night. There's only four of us on retreat there. He was not at dinner that night. Uh, he's definitely not a monk. He's got on jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, he's got kind of long hair. He looks like he's about my age, probably like mid-30s, I would guess. Uh, and so he gets to the top. He's probably 10 to 15 yards away from me. Uh, and he looks up and he and I lock eyes. And he comes up and shakes my hand. I'm going to sound crazy right now just to sort of preface this with what I'm about to say. I'm going to sound totally nuts. Uh, But do you know who that person was? It was Jesus. Oh my goodness, this pastor's lost his mind. No, trust me, it was Jesus. You see, if you've ever seen the show, The Chosen, that's the miniseries about Christ and his disciples, it just so happens that Jonathan Rumi, the guy who plays Jesus, he was up there on retreat that week. (laughs) Go figure. Uh, And so, I don't know, maybe it seems like just kind of a neat story, random encounter with nothing behind it. Now, here's the thing, I didn't take it that way. Didn't take it that way. Uh, You see two things about it. One is the whole reason I went to the monastery, uh, I shared it in the sermon right before I left, I went up there to, quote, die with Christ, is what I said. And so here I am in a cemetery with the guy who plays Christ. (laughs) Hello? It's weird. Uh, The second thing, right before I met him, I was thinking about that question, right? How are these monks so inwardly vibrant while their life is so outwardly barren? And the thing is, I felt like I was getting my answer. It's because of Christ. Uh, Not the actor, cool guy, but not him. No, it's because of Christ is what's giving them that vibrancy. In other words, what the monks had done is they had cut off everything else so that that seed that is Christ could take root and grow in their life. And so as I walked down the mountain that night, what I started to think about, I started to think that I had been sold a lie. What I mean by that is for whatever reason, I have fallen into this belief, and maybe you have too, but I've fallen into this belief that the way to make my garden green, meaning the way to make my heart vibrant and alive, right, is to fill it with all sorts of desires and distractions. And yet what I started to see on retreat is, at least for me, a lot of what I spend my time, energy, and my heart on 
or just a bunch of weeds. Choking the plant that is Christ. And so one of the first things when I did, uh, did when I got back, I just deactivated all my social media accounts. I don't know, maybe that sounds like kind of a petty outcome after meeting Jesus, right? Uh, but you see, any kind of weed that's preventing Christ from, Christ from coming to maturity in us, I would say it's not petty, it's a problem. And we need to be willing to just cut it out if we're to realize our Christ-like potential. And so in our passage, the third kind of soil is the soil with weeds. In other words, it's the human heart that does indeed have Christ planted inside, and yet the plant of grace isn't being nourished or nurtured in that person's life. Simply because there are just so many weeds of desire and distraction that we've let crop up around it and choke out its growth. And so the way to not be that kind of soil, if you just want to be utterly practical, make a list, literally, make a list. Whatever is preventing the life of Christ from being vibrant in you, uproot it. Just tear it out of the soil of your heart. And the promise of this parable is if we're willing to make our life at least a little more outwardly barren, it will become a lot more inwardly vibrant. So those are the three kinds of soil from the parable, just to kind of run through them again. Uh, it's the hard soil, that's hardness of heart. It's the shallow soil, that's weakness of will, rooting it in your feelings, rooting your faith in your feelings, that is. Uh, and it's the weedy soil, which represents the dominance of desire and distraction in our life. And so finally, we get to what Christ refers to as the, quote, good soil. And you see what's notable, if you go through this passage, Christ never really describes exactly what the good soil is like, other than the seed sinks into it and it bears fruit, right? Uh, that's all that he says about it, and I think that's because essentially it's just the soil that eschews the other three problems that we were just looking at. And yet, with that being said, there's something that happens in this passage, and I think it gives us a really good picture of what good soil looks like. Uh, so just to go there one last time, at the beginning of our passage, what it says about it is a really large crowd has gathered around Christ. Uh, so much so, in fact, that the guy has to get on a boat to teach. They're like all around the shore. He has to get on a boat to actually teach them. And so one thing about this, at this point, all of a sudden, first time this has ever happened in Mark, a lot of people seem interested in Christ. Uh, he's getting kind of a name for himself, right? They want to hear what he has to say. And so this is his chance, right? And yet, what does he do in response to this? He preaches what is probably the worst sermon he has ever given. Literally, it's just this parable about different kinds of soil. He doesn't explain anything to the people. It's totally confusing. It's completely unclear. And when he gets to the end, he just goes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mic drop. That's verse 9. And what happens as a result is pretty much everyone just leaves. Probably kind of disappointed. And so if you pick up in verse 10, what it says is it's just the disciples, that's 12 of them, and a few other people. And what they do is they essentially ask him, like, what was that? Like, come on. 
You could almost hear them saying, like, what were you thinking? That was horrible. You should have preached the Sermon on the Mount. That was a good one. Oh, you totally missed your chance. And yet, what Christ essentially says in response is, no, guys, that was totally intentional. It was intentional, you see, because he just quotes from Isaiah, it's the prophet Isaiah, uh, that the reason he's speaking in parables is so that, quote, they will see but not perceive, hear but not understand. And so let me get this straight. The, you're saying, Christ, you're saying the reason you gave a confusing message is you literally wanted to confuse people? Really? And I know it sounds crazy to us, but yes, that's what he's saying. It's totally contrary to our way of thinking. For instance, I think a lot of pastors, just to pick on ourselves, uh, we see a big crowd at worship, we get excited. Christ sees a big crowd and he gets skeptical. You see, because he knows that in that crowd are all sorts of different soils. Most of which are not open to the seed of his word. And so what he does, not just in our passage, but I would suggest even now he does this. He presents himself to us in a way that is not immediately accessible. Uh, what I mean by that is the gospel of Christ isn't this super easy to grasp, all of us immediately benefit from it sort of thing. Instead, in order for that seed of God's truth to sink into the soil of our nature, we've got to ask for understanding. We've got to seek to grow. We've got to knock on that door of God's grace. And if we do that, it will happen. The one who asks receives, is what he says. The one who seeks will find. The one who knocks, for sure, the door will be opened. That's the promise. That's also what you see lived out in this passage. It's precisely the people who prayerfully persist in the word. They're the ones that Christ draws near to at the end and actually teaches one-on-one. -on -one. And you see, that's what it means to be good soil. It's you don't just hear a sermon, receive a sacrament, receive the scripture, sorry, read the scripture, and just leave it at that. That's not sufficient. Instead, what the disciples did in our passage is they sat with it. They reflected on it. They prayed about it. They took whatever time they needed in this hurried life of ours, they took whatever time it, it took in order to have the seed of God's truth sink into them and take root as something new and Christ-like sprouted up in their life. And that is, in the end, what it means to be good soil. And that's what this whole passage and parable are calling us to. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ that he's come to us in and through his word. That he continually comes to us in and through his word and he plants himself in the soil of our nature. God, you give us everything we need to bear his image. And yet even as we pray that, Father, you know the state of our hearts, that often they're hard. A lot of the time our faith is dependent on our feelings, that we've got a lot of weeds that have grown up in our lives. In our lives. And the thing is, Lord God, we don't want that. We want to be good soil. And so we do pray that by your word of correction and kindness, you would soften the soil of our hearts and plant something new inside of us. Even if, even if just this day. It's in Christ's name that we pray this and all God's people said, amen.